Just a quick note, I wound up having a dip on this panel a little bit early. My good friend John came up and I pretty much bailed on the convention on Sunday. So I missed the last maybe five or ten minutes of this. I hope you're still able to enjoy it. so great to see so many folks here um, in appreciation of Junji Ito, um, who I guess if you're here you probably know who he is, <laughs> but Japanese um, horror comics artist, um, I think probably in the U.S. best known for Uzumaki and the meme versions of Enigma of Amagara Vault, which lent its name to the, the panel uh, title. So yeah, really awesome that everybody is here. I'm super chuffed about that. Um, so first off, um, I will be um, modding. It is my first time modding, so I'm sorry if I'm like super nervous. Please don't be crazy so that I don't have to be a crazy person as a moderator. Anyway, um, I'll start off with introductions. I'll ask our panelists to introduce themselves, and then we'll leave at least 15 minutes for Q&A at the end. So. There we go. Okay. Um, so I'll just start off. I'm Nadia, and I'm a horror writer. Um, my collection is called She Said Destroy, blah, 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 doesn't matter. <laughs> um, big Junji Ito fan. Um, I'm going to ask all of our panelists to say what their favorite work by Junji Ito is when they introduce themselves. So I will say that mine is Hellstar Ramina. Um, let's start with Sean. Hi, my name is Sean Moreland. Uh, I am uh, a writer primarily of, uh, of essays and articles, uh, academic uh, and expository and analytic stuff, although I have published a few poems and short stories. I'm uh, an adjunct professor at the uh, University of Ottawa. Uh, my research interests often circulate around horror, uh, the gothic, and uh, the weird. I've edited uh, anthologies of essays, including New Directions in Supernatural Horror Literature and the Lovecraftian Poe. I was actually introduced to Junji Ito uh, very early on uh, in my doctoral program when I started teaching an undergraduate uh, sort of horror survey course, and one of the students brought in a copy of Uzumaki, which I had not seen at that point, and which completely blew my mind and you know tilted me into the pit of uh, of, uh, of Ito obsessiveness, which I think many of us in this room occupy together. It's a very uh, collegial feeling. Uh, Uzumaki probably is still my favorite, although his adaptation of uh, Samu Dazai's uh, No Longer Human is a close second. I think that's a really powerful book, and reading what, uh, what Ito does with uh, Dazai's novel, uh, I think also opens up other aspects of Ito's own work. You can kind of see some of the overlapping preoccupations of those creators working really unsettlingly there. Hi, I'm Cassandra. Um, during the day, I work in video games. Um, I'm with Warner Brothers Montreal. Cotton Knights, Just Win Go, please buy it. We, we all love it. <clears throat> um, I also write horror, and let's see. I've been thinking about 
my favorite Junji Ito media is it's actually not his horror stuff. It's the one the book that he wrote about getting introduced to his girlfriend's cats. <laughs> I wrote the first time I read it, I was like, now these two cats, they are definitely some kind of demonic thing. It's like I got to the back of the book. I remember I just saw flipped it over, I looked it back, I was like, no, he's just like that. He was wonderful. She's also the guest of honor, or a guest of honor, so. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm Ken, uh, K.H. Vaughn. Uh, I uh, write uh, dark fiction and uh, poetry. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and former adjunct. Um, I, I got off the, the teaching wheel. Um, and I'm the uh, chair of the programming committee for Necronomicon. So. Uh, my favorite is probably, I mean, it's hard, right? But um, uh, uh, Gyo has certain hooks into me, I guess, more than some of his other work. And then, of course, uh, uh, Amagara Fault is, is in that collection as well. So that's, it's uh, for me, I think, a great threat. Although, you know, kind of revisiting his work in preparation for the panel, um, the work in uh, Smash really uh, uh, collectively, uh, I thought, spoke to me very well as well. Also, so I think that's going to percolate a bit. And my answer might be different in a month. So. Awesome. So first, I thought I'd start off with a softball question, and I'm going to start with Cass, just yes. to warn you. Okay. So how did you first become a fan? And maybe the slightly less softball-y version of that is how do you think Ito's work influences your work? Oh, let's see. Um, so growing up, most of my friends were guys because I spent way too much time in the cyber cafes playing Dota, playing StarCraft and stuff like that. And games. Uh, and so sometime in college, like a guy friend of mine came up to me and he was like, you should read this book. And I could tell then he had that expectation that I would be grossed out and I would hate it. And I was like, I took it from him. About two hours later, I was like, where do I get the rest of it? Do you have the rest of the collections? I want everything. <laughs> and that is kind of how I got into it. Very satisfying. He, on the other hand, was not happy with any of it. Um, I think Junji Ito seeped into my work in terms of the ritual imagery. There is so much that he does. Um, so many interesting, innovative things he tries, and he never really explains any of it. Uh, Uzumaki just is. Why are there spirals? Why is everything like that? And why is everything being twisted into spiral? We get something of an answer, but it really isn't. And I think reading his work gave me the confidence to try weird stuff myself. That's a great answer. I'm sure. I mean, I, I think I, my answer is probably pretty parallel to that. Um, you know, growing up, uh, and, and oddly with a lot of the same influences that Ito describes, because he does talk about, you know, universal monsters and, and you know, American horror movies being important in his own development, which is, you know, my wheelhouse, creature double feature uh, stuff from, from childhood. But, um, you know, so much of, of, of Western horror, causality is, is clear, right? Um, and there is certainly, you know, transgressive and grotesque elements within uh, you know, horror and weird fiction uh, in the English language, or originally in English. But, you know, Ito's willingness to write stories that lean so powerfully into the grotesque, 
um, I think is very liberating, as well as uh, uh, his willingness to say, this is what happened, and no explanation is offered whatsoever. You know, that, that, um, that's something that I, uh, I think I have tried to lean into uh, you know, a bit more as my writing has progressed over time. I don't really write horror by and large, but in terms of my, you know, my research and uh, my academic writing, uh, one of the things I find fascinating about Ito is his ability to mobilize and transform the obsessions and anxieties of his readers. I don't know how many of you have looked up at the ceiling of the room we're sitting in here and noticed the suggestive spiral patterns on uh, both sides and thought about the fact that this hotel was designed by an architect with a dubious interest in the occult, what could possibly go wrong? That probably wouldn't have occurred to me if Ito had not drawn my attention to the spiral. But I found after reading Uzumaki, looking back at the work of earlier writers, uh, Goethe, for example, you know, I started realizing Goethe was obsessed with spirals. Poe was obsessed with spirals. H.P. Lovecraft was obsessed with spirals. He's tapped into this very powerful, suggestive, absurd, but somehow a kind of absurdity that it's difficult not to accept and embrace kind of idea there and given it this, you know, this visual, uh, visual life. Awesome. Um, I think just to answer my own question, <laughs> um, I, so I grew up in Indonesia, um, where there is a lot of comics, and I remember being like really skipped. It, it wasn't a Junji Ito comic, and I, if anybody knows what this comic is, like let me know because I read it at a friend's house, and it included like basically in the end it was like a ghost had of the of a woman who had committed suicide by jumping off a balcony, and just the image of her ghost was so terrifying and I was like okay I will never read a horror comic again because I'm so scared of this because I was a very 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 frightened child um, and I think the reason that I started writing horror was because it was an easier way so I didn't have to like have the image in my mind um, but then as I sort of became more like okay I can watch horror movies I can like you know watch the grudge like like this you know um then eventually i was like maybe i should try horror comics again and junji ito was like the clear you know person in that genre and i i mean he seeps into a lot of my work honestly um i've written one story for phantasm japan that was inspired wholly by the will um which I don't know if anybody, anyone here has read it, but it's just this amazingly like satirical, dark story about these two high school girls cursing each other in death. Very powerful and very, um, I don't know about powerful, but it's very grim and it's like hilarious almost that so they're like blood covered ghosts or like the last panel. So um, that's my answer to my question. So I want to go to something that Ken mentioned, actually, about liberating and liberation. Um, and then also, I think that ties in somewhat to what Cass was saying about being free to write the weird. Um, there's a lot of transformations in Junjito's work, but they don't all seem to be rejected. Um, some of them are embraced. Some of them are accepted as penance. Um, so what do you think is Ito's take on 
transformation free for anybody to take? I think, yeah, I mean, that's really kind of the crux of, of most of Ito's work. It, it almost invariably involves a, a metamorphosis of some kind, however spectacular or subdued that is. And I think one of the reasons that Ito was attracted to uh, Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein as a subject for adaptation, he notably shies away from adapting widely known and adapted works of horror, with the maybe arguable, ex uh, arguable exception of uh, Edo Gawarampo's uh, The Human Chair. Ito usually picks less well-known work that hasn't been adapted by other manga or comics artists, but Frankenstein is the, obsession, uh, the exception there. And I think the reason is that the preoccupation the kind of central theme of that novel, what makes a human being, right? What is humanity? How do you have it? How do you lose it? How can you be legislated out of it? Will you still have it if you undergo a physical transformation that makes you unrecognizable is one of Ito's core preoccupations and one that's explored by, uh, by virtually all of his work. And it's always, to some degree, a deeply ambivalent occurrence. If you think about the, the radical physical transformation that the, uh, that the landscape undergoes in the enigma of Amigata Fault, right? It becomes perfectly suited for the form of each individual human. There's something wonderful and celebratory about that at the same time as it's kind of uncanny. If you think about the transformation with which Uzumaki ends, uh, you know, there's something quite joyous about these symmetrically emerging spiral forms into which everything is transformed and the, the human protagonists in that story, uh, Shuichi and Kiria, end in an embrace through which they coil into a kind of double helical, very vitalistic, uh, very vitalistic form. So I think it's, it's kind of impossible to say whether it's ultimately you know, liberatory or horrific, the two are conjoined and inseparable and are, you know, more uncanny because of that. Um, I've often wondered if it is related to his cultural upbringing. Um, I'm ethnically Chinese, so I can't really speak to Japanese culture, but a lot of East Asian cultures, is very, they're really rooted in traditions, they're really rooted in the idea that you are here for your family, for those who come after you, you are here for, you know, the legacy of those who came before you. And with so much of that pressure, maybe some part of him is, what if I could break free? Um, think of Amigara Fault being able to find a perfect thing for yourself instead of fitting yourself into someone else's mold. And conversely, Uzumaki, I don't know. Sometimes it feels to me like he's drawing, like, what if I could just conform completely and utterly? There's, like you said, a celebration to it and a relief in just following the world order. So. I wonder if it's part of that, too. I, I think that's a, a really, really strong point. I, I think that the tension between conformity and 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 kind of the horror of, of individuality is, is, a, is a really strong theme uh, in his work. And, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, you know, kind of I, when I look at his work, uh, he's very idea-focused for the most part. Like, most of his stories are here is a, an idea of something that's going to happen. And uh, the characters are loosely sketched, you know, right? They're not, they're not kind of the, the, kind of the major focus. Um, I mean, outside of uh, uh, No Longer Human, of course. Uh, and, and also in Censor. Uh, uh, and in discussing Censor in interviews, he's talked about how he and his editor really talked about character being more of an important focus for this particular work. And it really does show 
um, that the, the, the characters are much more fully realized as, as, as dimensional human beings than they are in you know many of uh, his shorts where they're you know they're 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 there to be the, the victim of whatever process it is and so there's something about to me this idea that that humans in their kind of base day-to-day form are not interesting uh, uh, to him and they become interesting only when some sort of transformatory process has occurred and it may be a horrifying uh, uh, event but that is where people do escape you know kind of the mundane sameness of, of, of everyday life and I think you also see, uh, you know, cases like uh, Dissection Chan, which I'm, I'm fond of, is this woman who is obsessed with dissecting people and then starts asking people to dissect her. Um, you know, when she finally achieves her goal, it is, at least for her, a joyous experience, right? And I don't know if that's the joy of achievement or for some characters maybe it is the joy of relief from having to no longer fight the obsession that they have been struggling with, but that release uh, of transformation um, is, is certainly not always a bad thing, even if it looks horrific, uh, you know, for us. Yeah, the two works that I was thinking of um, that um, kind of have an unconventional approach to transformation um, one was the Earthbound, um, which is one of his, I would say, like saddest works, um, and and that's where you sort of get the idea of transformation as as penance. It's like you're seen to your core, and you realize that you must now transform into this otherly creature in because you did this terrible thing and you are rooted to the place of your sin forever um so it's like it's horrific it's it's not embraced but it's it's accepted with um i don't know like composure and the other one was army of one where i think that really ties really well into what sean and Cass were talking about with like communal and identity and like the fight of like do you want to be an individual or do you want to join the great army which of course if you know anything about japanese culture you know that is a a, a very strong theme um so yeah that and, and that one i think is especially because i think that one is takes i think he's a hikikomori right an army of one um and so his instinct is to be an individual but an isolated individual but then the community is saying come join us join join the army yeah, it, that makes me think too of, uh, of uh, Ito's decision in uh, No Longer Human uh, when the, uh, the protagonist becomes involved with the Marxist underground in Japan, but they're all insects. <laughs> it seems, uh, seems to be relevant to that. We'll move on to the next question, uh, which is a little bit different. So one of the things I wanted to um, ask our panelists about was the impact of comedy and playfulness in Junji Ito's work, because it's not like the kind of work that you're like, despite how horrifically, you know, some of the panels are, it's actually kind of funny. Like a lot of them are actually kind of funny. Um, Like Glycerine, I think is is pretty funny. Um, So I was gonna ask what they thought about um, like the role that the absurd and humor plays for Ito's work. 
uh, I think Ito's work, all of it, is infused by, by you know, humor, uh, and self-parody is one of the modes that he works in really recognizably, I think, right? There's a kind of, uh, you know, self-deconstructive mockery in, in virtually everything that Ito does. The, uh, the, the most kind of obvious example of that. I don't think it's one of his strongest, uh, one of his strongest stories by any means, but it certainly speaks to uh, to humor and to the sense in which his work uh, works as a kind of extended, unsettling joke. Is uh, Ghosts of Primetime, the uh, the story about the two uh, comedians who their jokes are terrible, right? They wouldn't normally make people laugh, but they sort of astrally project or you know somehow. Uh, step out of their bodies and tickle to death members of the audience and it spreads like an epidemic through uh, through Japanese culture and I, it struck me that there's a kind of metonym for Ito's work in there, right? These are all jokes. They may not be funny, they may be fatal, but you know, there is always that undercurrent of, uh, of humor and a kind of playful uh, mockery to them. I think it's a really human reaction as well to horror. It's hard not to laugh sometimes at the absurdity of situations like how many of us have related a terrible story as a joke because if you don't laugh at it you scream and we instinctively go towards the other part of it and I think I feel like Junji Ito is constantly thinking about it just constantly viewing tragedies things he has processed and it has to come from some place of humor otherwise it's going to be way too dark to even put on a page yeah, I mean, that's, I guess I have two thoughts, which I, and they're not probably as well articulated as I would like at this stage, but uh, I, I think if you look at the, 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 the Cat Diaries, where, you know, it's, it's, it's so, in a lot of ways, normal that anybody who has had a cat has had these experiences, right, of, you know, what a wonderful cat and how calm, and oh, now you fit me, you bastard. Um, uh, you know, as I have three, and I, I know this well. It's 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 my life. Um, the, the you know stylistically, it's so realistic. But then he kind of gets to the point of the exaggerated, grotesque in the illustrations. It, 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 and it, and in, in those stories, it's much for for humorous effect. But that's also what he does in the rest of his work to a large degree. And so. Um, that I did that is kind of self-referential, that, that, that he is telling a joke that maybe not everybody's in on all the time with that. I, I think is a, is a, is a, is a, that's an ideal that I think is very, uh, I think there's something there. And the other thing that this strikes uh, me with is uh, you know, the, the, the aspects of No Longer Human, where we have a character who, um, in an effort to reject normalcy and his place in society becomes a buffoon and a clown. His, his entire identity is wrapped up in that, despite the, the, the absolute darkness of the story. And I, I was hesitant, you know, in preparing for the, the panel to, to uh, spend a lot of time with it, because obviously it's an adaptation, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not all his original work, but he clearly is, he, he, he chose to do it, right? So it's, it's this aspects of that story that clearly interest him and so I think there is an aspect of, of putting on a false face to hide from I mean how truly horrible human beings are you know certainly a no longer human and how indifferent and, and dangerous the universe uh, often is 
uh, in real life. I think that it's 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 both defensive. Uh, it is a, a bit of a stress relief or a pressure valve. Um, and I think it just also amuses him, you yes. know, more than anything. Yeah, I was thinking like, I feel there's a mischievousness quality yeah. to a lot of his work. Um, and I, I know, for instance, he said about um, Tommy, like, he's like, I get all these girls that tell me I would love to be her. <laughs> and that's like how he like justifies her character, um, which I think kind of reminds me of the whole like liberation thing um, that like you get to, or, you know, Soichi, who is like just like this little monster. And it's kind of, I don't think that a lot of his characters, even the really bad, bad one, the villains are like evil. They're just kind of like trickster spirits almost, who are just kind of out for their own gain and, you know, pleasure slash amusement. Um, and so it's like, it's not so bad to make them a little bit funny and um, amusing. You know, and it's, it's, you know, if you, if you think of the characters that are, are maybe you know, villains or antagonists who are, who are doing, you know, often you know questionable or horrible things, they laugh a lot, right? Compared to the other characters, they're the ones that are having a good time, and and uh, and, and yeah, so I think I think yeah, he's 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 he's, he's enjoying that process. Just the connection between uh, the, the Yonin move, the cat diary, and uh, the character of Soichi. I yeah, absolutely agree with everything all of you have said about that, but there's that short uh, Soichi story, uh, Soichi's Beloved Pet. And it's like the Yonin move, the, the, you know, the grotesquerie and threateningness of the cat's taken to extreme, and eventually the cat you know, is, is, uh, is encapsulated in the panel, and it's got this creature in its mouth. And you know, anybody who has a cat that catches insects, you'll be able to identify with that moment you know, when your cat appears with like a, a cockroach or a beetle or a centipede in its mouth, and you're like, ah. but this thing has like you know, 100 legs and 100 eyes, and it's this, uh, this completely monstrous figure. But it's a profoundly funny moment in uh, in the comic at the same time, right? Despite the, the detailed grotesquerie of this thing in the cat's mouth and the, the detail of the musculature in the cat's mouth as it applies pressure, the little bit of drool at the corner of the mouth. It's it's just such a strange, unsettling combination of, of humor and horror. I was like very concerned about the cat the whole time. So like, <laughs> I was like, I don't care about anything else. This cat better not die. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I'm glad you mentioned um, centipedes, and this is why, <laughs> because I was I was looking up like, okay, what is Junji Ito scared of? Which is a you know something that he gets asked, as you can imagine, all the time, and he always references like childhood fears. He's like, well, there was like centipedes under my house, and they're very creepy crawly, and so I made a lot of stories about those. And it's like, okay, um, so you know, not not exactly the most sort of like existential answer there. But there were two things that he mentioned that I wanted to read a bit of just a quick quotes about these because they were so interesting and I think sort of like show kind of the bizarreness potentially of his psychology. So first off, when I was young, I was thinking about myself and became afraid. I'm not sure if it's because of that, but I'm not very good at watching myself in media and I hate listening to my own voice, too. I think that's why I often write manga with a doppelganger theme, where a character sees another one of themselves. So that's one. 
And the second one, if I can get it, oh yeah, other people's eyes, their gazes. I used to be quite scared of that, and so when I would be walking down the road and people would look at me, I couldn't meet their eyes. It was just a scary experience. I think I don't have that so much now, and I think in horror the eyes are really important. How you draw them can totally change how scary a story is. I think the scariest part of the body is probably people's eyes. So we've got those two sort of quotes about like seeing, being seen, other versions of yourself. And I wanted, I'm curious as to our panelists' thoughts on how that, those fears seem to be reflected in his work. When I think he's being a little coy almost in his interviews when he says, when, you know, people ask, well, why do you do these things? And he's like, oh, well, I, yeah, I think bugs are scary. Or, you know, yeah, sharks are scary. I mean, I, maybe he's completely sincere, but he's, 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 not, he's not writing Jaws, right? I mean, he's, 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 he's in a completely different direction. And so I, I, I want to suspect that he's got a bit more insight into, you know, his internal world and, and, and what his obsessions are that he's just, hey, I'm not answering that question because that's mine. Um, My train of thought of just just went completely off the rails. Uh, something about about how um, um, circle back. Okay. We'll, we'll find it again. <laughs> I was thinking about what you said. Of want to just jump on the casual comment and you make. I think childhood traumas are still very important. They don't need to be existential. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. They shape so much of who we are today. Regards to those two quotes, like it really struck me. Um, I have really, really severe body dysmorphia, something I wasn't aware about until this once when um, my flight got canceled. I had to check into a hotel overnight so I could go to my next flight. And I took a shower. I was just dead tired. I already waited like 12 hours at that point. I was dying. I just, I just wanted to be asleep. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I don't understand why I have such negative opinions of myself. And it was, I was tired enough to be able to see myself for what it was, but the body dysmorphia kicked in a few seconds later and I saw a physical shift. I changed in front of myself and I was like, oh, I, I see how embedded that is. And I think I see a lot of it in Junji Ito's work, and it resonates with me for that reason. The way he draws people, their proportions, the way they smile, all of it reflects this uncertainty about his flesh. And I think a fear, perhaps, that people are seeing worse things than even he is perceiving in himself. Yeah, I, uh, Nadia, I really liked what you said earlier about the, you know, even the most sinister and menacing characters in Ito's work are, are trickster figures. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a sense in which those characters, especially Soichi, are kind of embodiments of how Ito sees himself as an artist or as a, as a storyteller. His unwillingness or refusal to bring in his own sort of personal life, personal views most of the time. Uh, when he was a guest of honor at the Toronto Comic Arts Festival in 2019, I was able to attend that. You know, the interviewer kept trying to tease out aspects of Ito's life, like, oh, well, you were a dental technologist. That, much, that must have really affected your work and your worldview. No, 
you know. Um, so you're, you're really concerned with uh, with well, he's not scared of teeth. <laughs> no, he's not afraid of teeth. He just said, well, I had to study and you know anatomical drawings a lot, so that was useful. Uh, but you know, well, he, th there are all of these ecological themes in your work. Are you? Is it? Mm, yeah. You know, he doesn't want to engage in a polemical or personal way with his work. He's almost like T.S. Eliot that way, right? Where the you know the tradition and the individual talent, the individual artist, should be eclipsed somehow by the work that they're doing. But uh, there's a there's a Japanese storytelling form called uh, rakugo, where I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, where you have a single actor who performs multiple characters, and Ito's work is. Especially the shorter pieces, but you know, even some of the longer, uh, the longer work kind of reminds me of that because the little grins, the sly winks, you know, you have all of these kind of reminders that this trickster figure Ito is standing behind all of these seemingly different characters and you know pulling the strings, uh, as it were, and that I think is part of the humor of his work as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, to, to answer, you know, kind of the actual question you asked, um, I, I, I think I see a couple levels, and one is that if there are monsters or forces or, or uh, people who would curse you or do you harm, and they see you, then that's when you should be afraid, right? I mean, that, that to be seen by things that are malevolent or wish you harm, that's when you become prey or a victim. And I think on a surface level, that's, that's, that's there. But I think more importantly, and I think it's, it kind of ties into what, what Cass was saying, is that being seen for who you are or who you think you are is one of the most terrifying things out there for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I, I know again, having uh, you know been on both sides of the of the therapy couch, um, you know, one of the most powerful experiences in a therapeutic process, and and and, and just in relationships in general. You know, you don't have to do this formally, but you, friends, families, lovers, um, is when you know that moment when you reveal whatever it is about yourself that causes you shame. And, and makes you feel like you're not worthy of, of love. And you, you put that out there to some other person, right? And you are, you're most vulnerable and, and whatever the thing is, they, they see it. And this thing that you think is going to annihilate your relationship with this person, it doesn't. They don't run screaming from the room. They stay there and they stay with you and they see you and they, they care and love you regardless of whatever that thing is. And so, uh, yeah, being seen is, 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 a, is a truly terrifying experience for most people at some level. Yeah, I think when I, when I think about eyes and Junji Ito, I always think, A, like the... You know, he, he draws very pretty eyes for lots of his, like, female characters, right? In the typical sort of, like, manga style. But then I also think of the Uzumaki, like, the classic panel where it's, like, coming out of her eye into her brain. And I think it's sort of, like, yeah, there's, like, a, there's a sight-brain connection there of, like, how deep and visceral, you know, the attack is once your eye is infected. Um, that's, yeah, always kind of what I think of, but anyway. Um, 
<laughs> Just to, to add to the eyes thing, uh, yeah. one, you know, I'm really interested in the, the idea of, of cosmic horror and in kind of iterations of that idea, which is often kind of mistakenly taken to be an invention of H.P. Lovecraft. You know, it's not. It was a term that was in circulation decades before Lovecraft uh, began using it. He was kind of responding indirectly or otherwise to other ideas about cosmic horror, you know, not just fiction writers like Macken and Blackwood, but also uh, the, uh, the physician and ophthalmologist George Milbury Gould had this whole kind of theory of, uh, of cosmic horror. And he was an ophthalmologist. He, was, he wrote a series of clinical pictures of famous writers, Lafcadio Hearn, Nietzsche, uh, etc. And he almost invariably reduces all of their seemingly psychological characteristics to dispositions of their eyes. He does like, for the like eye. Like disorders of the eye. Exactly. He tried to do for the eye what Freud did for the phallus, basically. And so he's really the first figure to consistently develop this concept, this theory of, uh, of cosmic horror, and he was friends with Lafcadio Heron. And Heron's writings, especially when he started writing uh, Kaidan, right, when he moved to Japan and began sort of taking these Japanese folkloric traditions and, and writing them into English, that really powerfully influenced uh, Gould's ideas about, op uh, about optics and about the, the dangers of the eye. And in terms of the comics connection, uh, you've probably all heard of Frederick Wortham, you know, Seduction of the Innocent, the uh, persecution of horror and, uh, and uh, crime comics and superhero comics in the 50s during the McCarthy era. Well, he was a psychiatrist, but one of his arguments about why comics are bad for children is that they attack the eyes. You spend all your time staring at these garbage images and it damages your eyes, especially if you're a young boy. And, you know, he totally seems to, whether directly or otherwise, respond to that with his thematization of the eye. There are some interesting parallels between, you know, a character like uh, the Corinthian in Neil Gaiman's The Sandman and the way that Ito stages over and over and over again the eye as the literal site of horror or transformation. That reminds me of the, the fear among some, like, peoples who have not been exposed to cameras, that cameras capture the soul. And so like, you know, the, the whole fear of being perceived is also like, well, then you're captured in this picture and then you, your soul has been stolen from you. Um, this is kind of what that made me think of slightly. And the other thing that you made me think of that I actually don't have an answer to this at all, but the role of like folklore because you mentioned Kaidan, and has have people seen Kaidan, read Kaidan, seen Kaidan? Um, wonderful movie, if you haven't, um, about Japanese ghost stories, extremely scary. Um, and gorgeous. And gorgeous. Just, just and, gorgeous. And very eerie, um, because it's not like the kind of J-horror you see now, it's like, it's like a stage play. And that almost makes it feel more haunted than a, a typical J-horror. Um, but it made me think, is there an influence of folklore on Ito's work? I mean, fate and family is very, is, does play a role, like in My Dear Ancestors, and inheritance plays a huge role, right? But it seems to be somewhat, you know, specific to the character, not necessarily about some kind of great cultural heritage, but thought I'd open that up to the folks and see what they think. Yeah, it seems like Ito very rarely 
represents like a traditional, and you know, I'm not, I'm in no, uh, no sense uh, an expert on, uh, on Japanese uh, folklore, but you know, from my, my very limited understanding, you don't typically find uh, representations of traditional figures from Japanese folklore in, uh, in Ito's work. I guess there's a, a sense in which, you know, in some kind of really loose sense, uh, there are yokai in his work, but they don't correspond to, you know, the kappa or some other very traditional version of that. But you have these weird transformations of traditions, and then Cassandra's earlier point about, you know, conformity and tradition, I thought really resonated. And it made me think of, uh, in Uzumaki, you have the, the traditional row houses that end up being, you know, folded up like a crunchy roll at one point, and it's like this this almost literal embodiment of that idea of tradition being transformed, uh, at, but at the same time being the agent of transformation into something unrecognizable. And if there are, you know, yurei and yokai in, in Ito's work, they've been transformed to such a degree that they're, they're barely recognizable as such. I feel like his work has a lot of folklore influences, but on a subconscious level. Um, going to repeat again, I have very little exposure to Japanese culture in Japan. Um, a lot of stuff is what I read, what I consume through media and stuff like that. But I look at my own work, I look at the work of my peers, especially those who were born and raised in Asia, and it's hard not to have the myths seep into you when your parents, your grandparents, your friends, everyone is a ghost story, everyone has a tale about something else, and you can track your legacy across generations and decades and centuries, and when you go to your own work, like, it feels almost instinctive to bring some of that there because you are a part of an ancient tradition, so to speak. Yeah, totally agree. Like, there's a lot of stories he writes that are about people going, like, to home villages, to somebody else's village, like, and that's where it's like, the tradition is there, it's warped, but it's powerful and there and can't really be defeated. I mean, it's just, you gotta kind of adapt to it. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I, think, I, think, I think that's right, that, that it's in there, but... And I almost wonder if part of part of kind of his program is to, you know, just like you know, many of his characters are breaking away in their own particular obsessions. I mean, he's making a very conscious choice to not use you know traditional types of spirits and and and, and demons and and cosmology. And, and um, I think I think you could argue that there's a there's a parallel there. I mean, you can certainly see, like, uh, you know, like hungry ghosts. I mean, there are, there are some tropes that kind of work their way through there, but he's really trying to put his individual stamp on things and, and take it in the context of, of you know, the, the pressure of conformity versus individuality. He's, I think he's staked his claim very strongly about what he wants to do with, with those cultural influences. Yeah, and to Cass's, to Cass's point about um, it's in the subconscious, and that's the sort of where the individuality kind of it mixes with the, with the other thing. But I was thinking it was Sean's point about laughing villains, and I'm like, that's the most sort of like iconic right now, like modern Japanese urban legend, right? Kuchisake Ona, <laughs> who's constantly being like, am I pretty? You know, Tomi style, right? <laughs> And then you know you you have to like answer a set of questions in a very particular set of way in order to not be disemboweled or um, carved up like her because she's got that really big grin. 
Okay. Yeah. So, oh, 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 no, it's just, just a grid. Yeah. I have nothing I can contribute to that. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> you said it all. Nonsense. Um, so I wanted to take this time to maybe ask our panelists if they have other recommendations for horror, manga, and anime. Um, I do not have much. I can recommend, you know, like uh, Berserk, <laughs> which, you know, I'm sure everyone here has read. Um, I do think that Neon Genesis Evangelion and Akira have very sort of like horrific elements, um, particularly when you think about like apocalyptic and megalophobic, which I have megalophobia. So, um, and I think, you know, Ito has a lot of like megalophobia type um, imagery as well, but that's all I've got. So wanted to open that up to you guys to see if you have any other wrecks. Oh my gosh, Cass <laughs> really has wrecks. Okay, she is ready to go. <laughs> Dora Hedero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you awesome. Dora is absolutely amazing. It also has fantastic depictions. Sorry. Can you tell I'm a little bit excited about this question? <laughs> um, it has fantastic portrayals of platonic relationships. Um, really, really surprisingly good ace representation, much to my surprise. It is also gory, interesting, transformative. And the other one that I was really excited to share is one that I just discovered myself. Uh, I can't. And probably going to butcher the name, but Mureko-chan. And it, so the story is essentially of this young girl who can see ghosts. Yes. <laughs> okay, so people know what it is. They're getting excited with me. And so you get very Junji Ito-like monsters, things with like enormous smells, elongated proportions, and they're genuinely horrific. But most of the manga is her trying to pretend she cannot see them, so it just kind of plays out like a really cutesy schoolgirl manga for half of it. And then you see a monster coming after her, and you're like, can you see me? And she's like, oh no, I got something in my eyes. And she just falls away. It's adorable and terrible, and then it's definitely going really dark places in the most recent chapters, and y'all have to start on it before it gets there. Mm -hmm. I got <laughs> Thank you, Cass. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. No. I. I. Uh, Dora is the first thing I thought of because obviously there's. I mean, Ido is, is such a unique talent, but it is so surreal and strange and violent that it. That uh, I, I think uh, 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 Q uh, Hayashida is uh, is working a different kind of philosophical program, but there's a kindred spirit there. Certainly, and um, if you have Netflix, they've been pushing the hell out of that. And I hope, hope we get a second season um, because the, the, it is it's just gorgeously animated. Um, got mushrooms every. It's just the next episode. <laughs> and and I had not even considered Evangelion until you mentioned it, but but dead on because of the scale of, of, of grotesqueness and 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 also a lot of the, the themes of, of of you know commitment versus individuality and, and it, it's that's yeah that's a that's a brilliant comparison um i'm fond of shibuya goldfish it's a little silly but it's just this idea that um uh, suddenly these gigantic floating goldfish appear and they're floating around on the streets eating people uh it's a, it's a delightful concept um uh mushishi is not as dark by any means. It's it's gentle, 
but it still is this world in which there are this, these other things that interact with us in various ways. It's kind of melancholy more than horrifying, but I, I adore that. Um, I'm a huge fan of the, the Monogatari uh, series, Baki uh, Monogatari. I mean, again, gorgeously animated, and the way in which the problems that people have eventually, they're always wrong about what the problem is, and the problem is generally you, <laughs> right? Um, is, is wonderful. And the last one, just, just for pure horror, is um, there's an anime series called Erased, but a, a guy who's got the capacity to go back in time, and he tries to solve the murder of, a, of an elementary school student that he knew uh, and correct things. And it's honestly one of the most tense experiences I've had. I was watching this with, with one of my, my sons and we had to do like an episode at a time and then take a break for a couple of days because the we were just so horrified by, by the jeopardy and what was going to happen that it was, uh, I mean, one, probably one of my top horror experiences. And again, it's very different from, from what Ida was doing, but um, it's it's magnificent work, you know? I mean, Ido is a singular, you know, in, in vision, but uh, there's a tremendous amount of wonderful stuff, uh, you know, in the, in the manga and, and, and on my world. So, yeah, that's, that's I'll, I'll stop weaving now, but. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't actually read a lot of contemporary uh, horror manga, so I'm getting uh, wonderfully schooled here and making a lot of uh, making a lot of notes. Uh, but I did think of, and it's you know, it's very different. But those moments in Ito before things tilt over into you know full-on grotesquerie or the supernatural, before the transformation happens, that attention to visual detail creates an interesting dialogue with uh, with Inyo Asano's work, right? Who does these sort of uh, uh, nishijo everyday slice of life style comics that always have a kind of unsettling element of you know, the absurd, the, the, the figure that only one character in uh, the comic seems to see who looks like a, you know, like a small kind of uh, rabbit-like animal uh, is interesting that way. And it's not really manga, it's, you know, an American uh, comic, but Sana Takeda's art in uh, Monstrous, right, written by Marjorie Liu. You know, she brings the, this Baroque art deco lush visual sensibility to body horror, to kaiju, to, you know, all of these elements. So yeah, if, if you haven't read it, that one I would definitely recommend too. That, that's beautiful. Um, I have one more recommendation. I had to look up the name for it. Uh, Gakko Gurashi. It is a story of a bunch of schoolgirls who are, you know, they fortify themselves inside a school. There is a zombie apocalypse out there. And it's a very typical premise, technically, except one of the girls has had a psychotic break and she refuses to acknowledge that the zombies are out there. There are little bits of humor about it. It is kind of weirdly funny. They're all very adorable too. But on top of the gore, like there's genuine horror in it because the rest of her friends spend all of their time working to preserve her sanity, what's left of it. They'll be like, yes, we're going up to the roof to do X, Y, and Z. And then you have one friend that's busy stabbing zombies on the bottom level, trying to keep her safe. And there's just so much tension because slowly that facade, that lie that they're building for their friend starts to crumble and you're like, oh God, what is going to happen to these little girls? 
Oh, you know, actually, and, and one more. Um, it's it's classic, and it's one that uh, Ito has, has noted as a, as it influences a drifting classroom. Yeah, of course. Um, have to have to mention that one. Yeah. Another one that's been wrecked to me that I haven't gotten around to reading yet is Blood on the Tracks. Oh, oh I've not read that one. Yeah, yeah, been strongly recommended. Yeah. You know, and I think Blame is a very different kind of product, but there's something very terrifying about this. It's, it's a science fiction piece in which you know machines that are self-building society kind of go out of control and they're just basically expanding throughout the entire solar system and there's this massive megastructure that is far beyond human control and they've got people trying to live within this world that is looks like it was sort of built for them but but isn't and 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 there's a there's a sort of a of a strange displacement um in a, uh, an uncanniness and kind of a horror of, of living in this bizarre architecture that, you know, was not designed for us ultimately. And the scale of it is just it, staggering. It's a lot of fun. Okay, are we good with Rex? Nothing else? Okay. Yeah. So with that, I think we'll open it up to questions. If folks, I feel like you guys have been like super attentive and enthusiastic about our recommendation, so I can sense hopefully that there are questions. Um, so I wanted to make sure to give time to ask for you guys to ask them. Yes. So uh, when I was listening to your recommendations, I was actually a little bit surprised that you mentioned Parasite. I don't think you read that. It's like a in terms of like infection like, transformation and stuff like this, that's what might be now. You might be able to get into something, but there's also an anime on Netflix where like this guy's hand is infected by the parasite. It's like interesting because in some ways it's like his ally and they both depend on each other to stay alive, and it's also like really grotesque and like his hand would change shape because it's kind of like that type of control. Honestly, yeah. they're right. Honestly, I didn't recommend it because I thought it was so much of a classic. Everyone knows about it already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. In the back? Lean in the back? Yeah, keep. So
That is an awesome observation about the eye and hypnosis. Like, really great observation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, yeah, Joe? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I'm interested in the, uh, the path of the, the stories are often start at the very personal level. That's like a little small thing. A little slight inspiration as it progresses. It becomes more and more strange. And then it becomes like it opens up to the, the path to the village. So it's like it's almost like the contagion of the strangeness. And then eventually it, everything spirals or there's holes everywhere. And I, I'm kind of interested in her. Yeah, so the, the, the question was about the movement from the very personal in particular in uh, in Ito's work to, you know, these sort of more general transformations. And the, the example was the beginning of, of Uzumaki, right? You have that uh, full color uh, spread on the first page when you've got Kiria coming home from school to, uh, to Korozucho. Uh, and you just see the only spirals on that page are barely visible in the grass, right? A couple of little transformations. And then every panel after that, they encroach, they more, more and more insidiously take over and I guess that that kind of motif or tendency in Ito's uh, in Ito's work generally, uh, and that's I mean you're absolutely right. I think that's a technique that especially in the longer uh, the longer form uh, fictions he uses uh, he uses quite a bit. You even see him bringing that to uh, to uh, no longer human uh, to some degree, and that the transformation of visual details from the narrative gets more and more strange as the you know the narrator's journey to his his tragic fate uh, gradually. Unfolds. Um, I agree with all of that. I also, uh, this is going to sound very, especially nerdy even for this convention, but like I'm thinking of this as game design terms and like if you start with the giant cosmic horror, no one knows what's going on. So you gotta get a tutorial level in, you gotta get people settled in, get them used to the controls, to the environment, to the universe, and once you have that understanding and people are kind of grounded in it, then you can start expanding from there. Yeah, no, fantastic observation. I, tot I totally agree. I was like, yeah, they all start really mundane, but it's kind of like, it situates you in that person's life, and you're like, oh yeah, I could be walking home from school, and then it's like, by the end, you're like, oh my god. <laughs> yes, question, other? Yeah, uh, yeah, blonde? Yeah. Oh, I was going to. Uh, my name is Laurel, and I just wanted to ask as past I've been to bring about the regards of how do you seem to tackle and address these societal standards that we see through um, that aspect, that is contrast to Judy Eagle's work of having very powerful, very grotesque women and the counterplay between that? Well, there's, there's very much a radical rejection of. of, of culturally imposed standards, right, of what bodies are supposed to look like. I mean, you take it to an extreme, but but there is a, a very powerful rejection of those standards. And I think that's culturally, I think we're seeing a fair bit of that, generally speaking, these days, whether it's body modification or various body positivity or, or body neutral uh, forces that are out there. Yeah, at the same time, unless it's central to the storyline, most of the women in, in Ito's comics look iconically sort of typical, you know, uh, and, uh, and very similar. And that's why I, I think I heard you mention the short, uh, The Actress. Uh, where you know it's they, these these young filmmakers are looking for an actress to play a part, and they find this really unsettlingly 
grotesque looking uh, woman, but there's something very, very powerful about her to embody uh, one particular character. And I mean, the effect that that character has on the reader of the comic is directly related to the almost, you know, sort of cardboard, uh, uh, stereotypical appearance of most of the other female characters in Ito's work. There's a kind of simple iconicity to it otherwise, I think. Everyone answer what I was going to say. Okay. Generally. <laughs> no. All right. Yes, vest. Yeah, our jacket. Not sure. Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, I have a question about um, basically. Uh, so you brought up the element of humor and how the uses humor to kind of offset the horror of everything else. What I also noticed um, in a lot of this work, the use of sort of love or devotion or romance, like in the Yu-Gi-Oh, right? It's really miserable, but it's also kind of, kind of sweet. And I'm just kind of curious what you think about his, uh, his, his use of that kind of element in his work. Yeah, the power of love and desire. Yeah, I mean, I, I read uh, Uzumaki on one level, at least, as a romantic comedy, right? It Absolutely. Ends in, in, uh, it ends in Kiria and uh, Shuichi's uh, wonderful union as they uh, as they spiral together, and you're, you're absolutely right, Gil does. But the conditions under which that romantic liaison occurs <laughs> makes it hard to see it exclusively on that level. Um, I'm thinking of something Ken said earlier about that fear of being perceived and being vulnerable around other people and how much that gets to us, how much that is a fear. And I feel like love is on the opposite side of it and that's why it's so much in his work. There needs to be love and all of us crave it even if we're in our darkest moments, even when we're transformed by terrible things, all we want is to be held, to be understood because ultimately we are Islands in the sea, <laughs> uh, islands in the stream, and all that. And that connection is important. And I think Junji Ito recognizes it, especially in such a growing up, I imagine, in such a structured place like Japan, where everyone has um, expectations of them and so on and so forth. To have someone break through everything because they love you, that is powerful. And of course, it's in his work. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.